You can grab a seat. Good to see you this morning. Glad you're, so glad you were here. I love when we sing a song in Spanish. It brings me back to my days in Miami. I, I, we lived there for eight years, and a lot of uh, Spanish speaking goes down in Miami. And my wife's name is Kay. It's spelled K-A-Y-E. We're, baby, you're right here. Why don't you just wave to everybody kind of, if you don't know, that's her, that's my wife. Uh, her name's Kay. She's awesome. And it's not spelled the same as uh, in Espanol. If you ask someone um, the word K, you know what K means in Espanol? It means what? It means what? It's spelled Q-U-E. So we would be at restaurants in Miami. Often we love to eat Cuban in Miami. And we would go to a Cuban restaurant and someone, uh, my wife, she's super friendly. And she'll start talking to someone and they'll uh, ask her, como se llama, which is what is your name? And she'll respond, <laughs> K. Which now you're picking up, oh, that means what? And so and it's, it's really funny because she has kind of a country accent. Uh, como se llama? K. And, they'll, uh, and then they'll ask again, and they'll ask like a third or fourth time, and finally they'll walk away thinking, she just, I don't know what's going on here. So singing in Spanish brings back those, brings back those memories. But really grateful that you were here this morning. 20 years ago, this book was written, almost 20 years ago, called Bowling Alone. It's by a Harvard professor named Robert Putnam. He's a political scientist and sociologist. And sociologists say of this book that it is a landmark book called Bowling Alone. And he, he issued in this book this lament, this cry out to American culture, this warning that we were becoming more and more isolated from one another, that we were neglecting community, and we were shifting towards living life alone and not together. And so he did lots of research on all different types of organizations, and one of the organizations that he researched was bowling leagues, thus the title Bowling Alone. And here's what he found, that in the previous 15 years before this book was released, that bowling had risen dramatically, that there were more and more bowlers. And at the same time in that 15-year period of time, that bowling leagues had decreased dramatically. So you had more bowlers, less bowling leagues, thus the name of the book, Bowling Alone. That more and more people were bowling, they were just bowling alone, not in community. And that was a snapshot of the broader American culture that more and more of us were doing things in isolation, doing things alone instead of in community. And he warned, Putnam warned, that if you drift towards isolation, if you move yourself away from community, you're only bringing damage upon yourself. Now, I believe that if he rewrote this book today, the call or the warning would be much louder. I mean, think about this. This book was written before Instagram and Twitter and an iPhone existed. Before, after church today, you'll go into a restaurant, just pay attention, you'll see a family at a booth, four of them, not talking with another, but each looking at his or her phone. This book was written before binge watching on Netflix was a thing. And so, my, and I'm not knocking it because my wife and I enjoy several shows on Netflix. I just know I have to decide to opt out because you're already opted in. I mean, you have to decide I'm going to stop watching. You don't, you don't decide to start watching. It just keeps going. It just, five, four, three, two, one, new show. Five, it just keeps happening. If I don't pick up the remote control, I'll be in front of the TV for decades. It just is going to keep going. 
The show will just keep going. So there's more in our culture that pulls us into isolation and away from community now than when this book was written. And so here we are in week two of a series called Becoming You. And what we're discovering, we looked last week at, if I become who I'm supposed to be, really my true self, my real self, it's going to make me more and more happy, but I'm not going to discover my real self as long as I'm looking for my real self. I will discover who I am supposed to be as I look for the Lord, because becoming my real self is really becoming more and more like him. The more holy I become, the more happy I become. The more I'm formed into the image of Christ, the more I'm conformed into his image, the more content I am. So becoming you is really becoming who God's declared you to be if you're a Christian, who God desires you to be. But we're going to see today that you don't become you in isolation, that you really can only become you who you're supposed to be, who God intends for you to be in community. Now, some of you are going to push against this because I've heard people say for, for years, listen, man, I'm a Christian, but my faith, it's just between me and God. It's not between me and anybody else. It's just between me and him. And a faith that is just between you and God is our invention. It's not God's intention. Because God intends for our faith to be communal. People will say this, listen, my faith is so personal, it's personal, therefore I keep it private. And we've confused a personal faith and a private faith. Our faith is deeply personal. If you're a Christian, your faith personally changes you. And because it's personal, it's never private. If your faith is really personal, if it's really impacting you and transforming you, then there's no way it's private. And people don't say that about anything else. There's no mountain bikers in here that say, you know, mountain biking is so personal to me. I just keep it private. I keep it private. No, I go mountain biking. I've enjoyed mountain biking with many of you. Mountain bikers don't keep their personal mountain biking private. They put cameras on their helmets and capture their rides down technical mountain biking trails. Or they put it on their app to show everybody how the elevation they climbed. And at Christmas, they got some new pants with pads in them and gloves. And they don't keep the personal mountain biking private. And same thing with bargain shoppers. I know this. I'm married to a bargain shopper. A, someone who personally loves bargain shopping doesn't keep it private. She can sniff out other bargain shoppers in the room and compare notes. There's no way it's private. And you've never met a vegan who keeps that private. You've never met that. Doesn't happen. You've never met someone who crossfits and keeps it, keeps it private. Just doesn't happen. And so in every other phase of our life, whatever we do that personally changes us, there's no way it's private in the Christian faith to a much greater degree. It's personal, and therefore it's not private. It's not private. So we're going to see today in Philippians chapter 1, if you have your Bible, I want to show you just four verses, and we're going to see... In these four verses, the Apostle Paul, who wrote many of the letters in the New Testament, 
he writes a group of people who they had this personal faith in Christ and because it was so personal, there was no way that this faith was private. And they lived together in community. They had relationships with one another. And I'm gonna introduce you to, in a couple of moments, the people that the Apostle Paul actually wrote. We're gonna see who these people are. And he's gonna talk about the beauty of their community. And if you're going to become you, you're going to become you in community. All right, so Philippians chapter one, verse three. The Apostle Paul says, and and real quick context, this is to some real Christians that live in a city called Philippi. That's why it's the book of Philippians. Paul writes it from prison. And so he's in prison for sharing the gospel, for telling people about Jesus. And he remembers his relationship with these people. And he says this, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. If you have your pen, you may want to underline this phrase, partnership in the gospel. So the word there for partnership in the original language, the New Testament is written in Greek. And the word for partnership is, it's a popular Greek word. It's a famous Greek word. It's the word koinonia, and it means fellowship or community or partnership. And it carries the connotation of participating with one another, not simply associating with one another. So Paul is saying, I'm in prison, I'm thinking about you, I I pray with tears and with joy, and I remember that we have this partnership, this deep community, and it's not based on something shallow or surface, it's not based on something small, our partnership, our community, it's in the gospel, it's in the gospel. And the gospel means good news. The message of the Bible is good news. It's not good advice about what you do to earn God's favor. It's good news about what God has done for you to make you pleased with God. That's what gospel means, good news. And Paul says we have this partnership in the gospel. Now look at verse six. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. All right, so I'm gonna give us two thoughts from this passage. The first is, Christ forms true community. Not not shallow community, not surface community, not just we associate with one another, but Christ forms true, deep Christian community. He's the one who puts it together. So Jesus comes here and he rescues us, he forgives us, he gives you, if you're his, if you're his son or daughter, he gives you everlasting life, but he rescues you and then places you in relationships with other people, in community. That's what he does, that's what he's about. Christ forms true community. And so who is the Apostle Paul writing when he writes these words? Well, you may wanna read this later in the week, but in Acts chapter 16, is the story of the Apostle Paul showing up in the city of Philippi and telling those people about Jesus. And so you're gonna see in Acts 16, I'm gonna gonna sum it up for you, you're gonna see three different people who become Christians in Acts 16, and then Paul writes them in Philippians 1. Are you tracking, you following me? So they become Christians in Acts 16, and then Paul writes them now in these verses that we just read. And I'm going to tell you about these three people, and no matter where you are in your journey, you're going to see yourself in one of their stories. So if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, 
we are so glad you're here. And when you hear about these three people that become Christians in Acts 16, hopefully you'll get a sense that no matter what my story is, is, no matter what my background is, God loves me. God can do anything in my life, no matter what mess you feel you've made with your life, God cares for you and he pursues you and you being here isn't an accident, he loves you. So Acts 16, who are these people that Paul writes now in Philippians 1? The first person who becomes a Christian when Paul starts sharing the gospel in this city, Philippi, is this wealthy businesswoman named Lydia. And she is extremely successful. She's a dealer in purple cloth, which in that culture was this high-end material. So Lydia is someone who the culture looks at as highly successful. She's prominent. People respect her. She's done extremely well for herself. She's savvy. She knows what she's doing. If she lived here in our, our culture, she would have a panoramic view house overlooking Crystal Cove. She'd have a, a place in the desert and a condo in Manhattan. She'd fly first class. Class, drink red with her prime filet mignon. I mean, she has everything going. She sells purple cloth in that culture. This is a big deal, but it hasn't satisfied her. And maybe that's you. You, ha- you have you've acquired. You have pulled things into your life that you thought would quench you and satisfy you, and you've had the means to do it. You have done well for yourself, but it hasn't quenched. And this is Lydia. So she hears the Apostle Paul talk of Jesus, and she, she's in. She believes all of these things I've done and accomplished, they haven't delivered, they haven't satisfied. This Jesus wants to forgive me of all of my sin. This Jesus loves me, and she receives him. Lydia is the first person in Acts 16 who becomes a Christian. And so Lydia is one of the people that Paul is writing when he talks about this partnership in the gospel. The second person who becomes a Christian in Acts 16 is very different from Lydia. She is a former slave. She's a slave girl who many scholars believe ran away from home and sold herself into slavery. She's possessed with a demon, and because she's possessed with a demon, she's able to interpret people's fortunes. And so she walks behind people and tells them their fortune and receives money for her owners that way. So she's been humiliated. She's been abused. She feels discarded. She's had a really rough past. She's seen more than any of us who are dads with daughters want our daughters to see. She's seen a whole bunch of broken stuff in this world. And she is victimized, mistreated. And maybe that's been your story. Maybe your story is really a rough past and you wonder if there's a God who actually is going to love you and care for you. And so she walks behind the Apostle Paul. This is in Acts 16 when he's preaching and she's interpreting the future. She's saying, hey, this man's here to tell you about the son of the most high God. This man here is preaching about Jesus. She was right, and the Apostle Paul is evidently a patient preacher because he allows the distraction, but finally he turns around and casts the demon out of her, and her whole life is changed. She's very, very different than Lydia. So Lydia is this wealthy businesswoman. This is a girl with a very rough and battered past, but the same Jesus who rescued Lydia is the same Jesus who rescued this girl. God's grace is big. It's bigger than all of our sin. No matter what our sin is, God's grace is bigger. No matter what your past is, God's grace is bigger. The third person who becomes a Christian in 
Acts chapter 16 is a jailer. So here's what happens next. The slave girl's owners are livid because they can't make money off of this girl anymore. And so they um, have Paul and Silas turned into the authorities and Paul and Silas are put in prison. The authorities assign Paul and Silas to this one Philippian jailer. And surely this is the guy that everyone trusts. He's a Philippian jailer. So, I mean, he is, he's doing Orange Theory Fitness or whatever I said. He's doing Orange Theory Fitness. He's buff and beefed out and he's a good dude. Everyone trusts this guy. He's a blue collar worker, different from the slave girl, different from Lydia, but he is a good dude. And he's assigned to watch Paul and Silas. So Lydia would drink red when she's out. This guy's uh, skipping church today, having a six-pack, watching the Chargers. That's what this guy's doing. Very different guy. And so this guy is watching over Paul and Silas while they're in prison. About midnight, the scripture says, Paul and Silas, even though they've been arrested for telling people about Jesus, they start singing hymns in the jail. And God sends an earthquake about midnight, the scripture says. And at midnight, the jail shakes, the lights go out, the shackles are undone. This blue-collar Philippian jailer takes out his sword to kill himself because he's going to be humiliated. The the jail cells are open. These guys are going to leave. They're going to be free, and I'm going to be be the the worst worker of the year. I'm going to kill myself and save myself the embarrassment. Paul and Silas see him pull out his sword and they say, stop, we're still here. We're not going anywhere. And they tell him about Jesus and he becomes a Christian. So in Acts 16, Lydia, former slave girl, blue collar jailer, they're now all together in community. And the only thing they have in common is Jesus. That's all they have in common. They wouldn't listen to the same playlist on Spotify. They wouldn't go to the same restaurants, live in the same zip code, root for the same teams. They don't have the same hobbies. They don't have the same stories in their past. But what they do have is the greatest thing the world has ever seen, the good news of Jesus. And what they do have is greater than all their differences. What they do have unites them together and puts them together in community. And so many scholars believe, yes, it's good. It's a good story. Many scholars believe they actually meet at Lydia's house. And so the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. What I just read to you is a real letter. And Lydia reads it at the house. And they meet there on Tuesday nights for Bible study. And can, you can imagine Lydia's neighbors. There goes the neighborhood. Who's coming in? Just people that are very different than this swanky neighborhood we live in. But Lydia doesn't care. Lydia doesn't care at all because these are her people now. Because we've been rescued, all of us, she's thinking, have been rescued by the same Jesus. See, what unites us together, this is why Christ forms true community. It's not based on shallow things. It's based on the one thing that lasts forever, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of what he's done for us. D.A. Carson says it this way. The church is made up of natural enemies, What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've all been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That's the beauty of Christian community. Because we have people who gather together, and this is true of us, this is true of Mariners, 
who are very different than one another, but because what unites us is the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus is put under the spotlight. The gospel of Jesus is put on center stage and not some other thing that would unite us. We are different. And in our church, we have people from different ethnicities and different cultural backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds. We have people with different parenting philosophies and different political views. And what unites us together isn't any of those things. What unites us together is the strong and sure name of Jesus who transcends all of those things and gives us true community. That's what makes church so beautiful. So here in this room, there are natural enemies that come together for Jesus' sake. We have USC fans and UCLA fans that come together for Jesus' sake. We have those of us who prefer to listen to hip hop and those of us who settle for country music and we come together, we come, I'm sorry, we come together for Jesus' sake. We come together for his sake. And that makes the foundation of our community what people see. And listen, we live in a divided culture now. And what a divided culture needs from a church is a picture of true unity. A divided church will never be able to, ser to serve a divided culture. It takes a united church to serve a divided culture. And I love that we have people here with different backgrounds and who vote different ways and think differently. And I love that we come together, not on lesser things than Jesus, but we come together and we stand on the sure foundation of Jesus because that's what the world needs. That's what the world needs from us. <laughs> Community is only as strong as whatever it's built upon. Community is only as strong as what it's built upon. That's why some of the relationships that you've had in your life have fallen apart because it was built on things that aren't strong. So if you have a group of friends at work and the foundation of the relationship is only work and it doesn't go deeper than work, whenever somebody gets a new job or the project ends or the startup ends, is, is sold or deteriorates, if the work ends, the relationship ends because the foundation is temporary unless it goes deeper. If you play sports with a group of guys and the only basis of the relationship is the commonality that you all like the same sport, when someone get, gets injured or someone rolls their ankle, the relationship changes because it's built on a commonality that comes and goes. But this is what makes the church so beautiful. Our relationship isn't built on a surface commonality. Our relationship is built on the never changing, always lasting good news of Jesus. That's the foundation of our relationship. And that's why Jesus forms true community. All right, that's number one. I beat that one up enough. All right, let's move on to number two. Point number two. Community forms the true us. So this series is about you becoming who God wants you to be, and you're not going to do that. That's not going to happen for you in isolation. Community actually forms the true you. And I want you to see this in verse 6. I need you to press in because you're going to see, and I put this on your notes that are in your bulletin, you're going to see three um, weighty theological terms that are in your bulletin. And some of you are like, oh, man, I'm at church and home dude's dropping some weighty theological terms on me. 
Listen, if you can learn to order at Starbucks, you can learn these terms, all right? You can, you can. Well, I need a double venti with, I don't even know what you said. But if you can do that, you can learn the term justification and sanctification and glorification. So theologians look at how your Christian life is gonna look forever, and this is what they say. And you're gonna see all three terms in this verse. When you became a Christian, the Bible even uses this term, you are justified. In a couple of months, we're gonna walk through my favorite chapter in the Bible together, Romans 8. We're gonna spend many weeks walking through that. And we're gonna see that uh, over and over again in Romans 8. But justified means this. It means that when you became a Christian, God looked at you and said, he's perfect. She's perfect. Now, we're not perfect because we still struggle with sin. So how does God look at us as if we're perfect? Because when he looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees his son, Jesus. And we're justified. That happens when you become a Christian. Then what happens next is, and this is this, what this whole series is about, you are being sanctified. So when you're justified, you are free from the penalty of sin. You are given everlasting life. As you are being sanctified, you are freed from the power of sin. Sin holds less power on you as you trust Jesus more and more. Now, being sanctified, sanctification is this long process that will last you your whole life. And I wish it happened faster. I wish it did. I wish, I really wish I would become more like Jesus at a faster pace than I am because I still struggle. I struggle. The last phase is what happens when you die. You are glorified. The scripture says you will see Jesus face to face and you will become like him for you will see him as he is. And when we get to heaven, we no longer struggle even with the presence of sin. I can't wait. I won't struggle with sin at all. In this one verse, in verse six, you actually see all three. I want you to see it. Look at verse six. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you, so that's when you became a Christian, Christ started a good work in you, will carry it on to completion. That's what's happening now. If he started a work in you, he always finishes what he starts. He always completes what he begins. When you became his, he, he moved in and he's not giving up on you. He's gonna keep working in your life. He's gonna use all kinds of things to work in your life. He's gonna use the painful circumstance you're going through right now to work in your life. He's gonna use anything and everything he can to continue the work in you. Notice the next phrase, until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's when you see him face to face. So look back at verse six, Paul says this. I am sure of this. I'm for sure. He's in prison. He's remembering Lydia and the former slave and the Roman Philippian jailer. He's remembering them and he says, I am sure. I'm sure of this. He who started a good work in you is gonna keep doing. And the reason that he was so sure is he remembered their community. He looked at their relationships that they had with one another, the relationship they had because God put them together in community. And because of that, he says, I know for certain you're gonna keep growing. If the apostle Paul looked at your life and your community, the people you're the closest to, would he say the same? Would he say, I'm sure she's gonna keep growing because of her community. I'm sure he's gonna keep growing 
because of his community. So often I hear Christians say, I, I, it's, I got it covered. It's just me and God. I'm going to go deep. Me and God, I'm going to go deep. And what the scripture gives us is a picture, not that we simply go deep, but that we have community with other people. And God uses community to mature us. We become who we're supposed to be in community. To help us understand this, I took a crew from here, some friends of mine, to Mere Woods, just north of San Francisco, to see how the redwood trees grow because God grows you the exact same way. Take a look at this. This is Mere Woods and surrounding me are these giant redwood trees. They grow 250 to 300 feet high in the air and they've been here for 600 to 800 years. And so when you first walk into the forest, you're overwhelmed, not just with the beauty of the forest, but with the reality that you're standing among trees that have been here for so long, that they have been able to stand faithfully through all the seasons of life, through all the storms that have hit the Bay Area, these trees have stayed strong. And it's not because their roots grow deep. I mean, you would think that if a tree is 250 to 300 feet in the air, that surely the roots of this tree must grow very deep into the ground. I've heard Christians say this about the desire for their own life. Christians have said things like, I want to go deeper. I just want to go deeper in my understanding of God's word or deeper in my understanding of Jesus and his grace. And that is a great desire and a great thing to say. But that is not how these trees have been able to stand strong. Their roots don't grow deep at all. In fact, their roots only grow six to 13 feet deep into the ground. So how do they stand strong? Because even though their roots are shallow, they interlock with other trees' roots around them. You will never see one of these redwood trees growing alone. They only grow in groves. And though the roots are shallow, they interlock and they hold one another up and they sustain one another. And this is exactly how God's designed us to grow. Yes, he desires that we will want to grow deeper with him, but he holds us up, he matures us, and he sustains us in community with other Christians. So I want, I want for you as, as your pastor, I really want you to stand strong. And it's only gonna happen if you are in community with others. So what does this mean for us? As we wrap up, let me just give us two thoughts. First is I want us, you, to value this moment. When we gather together in worship, sometimes people will say, man, I worship, a lot of times I worship just alone, like on the golf course or in my Jeep or in front of a computer. I love our online audience. I love you. But you are <laughs> missing something when you're not here. Because the scripture gives us the picture of worship of it not often being just me and him alone, but me in community with others as we worship. In fact, I want you to see this, Psalm 95, it's one of the most famous passages in scripture about worship. Notice the plural nature, the communal nature. It's not individualistic. Verse one, come, let us, plural, shout joyfully to the Lord. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Verse two, 
Verse 6, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. This happens together in community. And the reason it's important is because there's days when you need, because your heart is struggling, you need to hear around you brothers and sisters in Christ singing joyfully to God. And there's other days where folks need to hear you singing joyfully to God because your faith encourages others and others' faith encourages you. That's the picture of the church in Scripture. And I know some of you are thinking, man, I'm cool with coming, but I am not the dude who sings. I'm a really bad singer, Eric. I'm not the, don't be challenging me to sing and belt it out at church because I'm not, I'm not that guy. And I get it because I can't sing at all. I am a poor singer. In fact, every sound guy, every place I've ever spoken tries to get me to turn on my microphone uh, like when I'm before the service begins because they're scared I'm going to get up and forget to turn it on and, and, um, and then it'll be clumsy but I, I'm not turning on my microphone before I get up here. <laughs> I'm going to show you why. I have a preacher friend of mine. His name's Tony. He's a good dude. He's a good dude. But he can't sing at all. And he listened to the sound guys. He, listened, he let those guys bully him around, and he turned on his microphone. <laughs> and they, without him knowing, recorded all of the times that he sang. Yes, these are evil people. And... <laughs> They, they dropped it on YouTube. He wakes up one morning and there's songs of him singing on YouTube. Here's, here's a couple of them. Listen, listen, it's painful. Sing my soul, my Savior God to thee. Glorious one, glorious one, light of the evil people. So I get it. And I am not turning my microphone on until I get up here. But I am going to be here and I am going to sing and I'm going to sing loud as bad of a singer as I am. And I'm going to lift my, here's why. I had a, I had a friend one time tell me, Eric, you serve so many people well with your bad singing. I said, really? He said, no, seriously, think about it. There's someone like three rows over that doesn't even know you and he's struggling if he's gonna have the boldness or the confidence to share the gospel with friends at work. He's embarrassed to, he's afraid to, and he looks over at you singing and is like, man, if that guy can sing, I can tell someone at work about Jesus. So I just want you to know that God even uses our bad singing to encourage each other. It's important that we gather together. We're blessed by others and we bless others. Several years ago, I was sitting in this back section, not here, but at a church that I was preaching at on the weekends. I was um, senior vice president at a company, a Christian company, and I had a big P&L statement, profit and loss statement, about $450 million, ton of pressure. We had this one quarter that was not a good quarter, and I would come to church and just woe is me, be thinking about getting to the office on Monday to go and fix things and try and make things happen and make things right. And during singing, I'm like, ugh, I just want to get this thing done. And then there's this guy who would sit right over here, and his name was Larry Ellis. And Larry Ellis, he and his wife Cheryl, godly couple, man, Larry Ellis, he was dying of cancer. 
And Larry Ellis would have his hands lifted and would be singing and I'd walk by him and he'd have tears streaming down his cheek. And the faith he had was stronger than my faith and seeing him worship changed me. That's why this is important. There was something in that moment that I couldn't get on a podcast. There was something in that moment that I couldn't get just by streaming the service. I needed to be in the moment. And so I want us to appreciate and value and care for this. Diedrich Pohnhofer said it this way, the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. There's times that's true for me. I need to see you and hear you worship because the Christ in your heart is sometimes, actually oftentimes stronger than the Christ in my own. You're like, Eric, aren't you the preacher? Isn't everything supposed to be perfect for you? It's not. It's not. I need, I need, I need this. I need this. So that's the first thing I want to challenge you. Second thing, as we think about becoming you in community, is I want you to be in a group where your roots intermingle. And so everybody, as we wrap up, can you take this card out, this group life card? And we're going to sing together in a moment and respond, but I want to give you a moment to fill this out. I appreciate all 15 of you grabbing it. And I want to ask the others of you. I'm not stopping until I see you grab it. Sir, I'm looking at you. I see you right now. You're just staring at me. And I'm, uh, yes, I am talking to you. I want you to go ahead and take this out of your, your bulletin. There's two people I want to talk to. One, if you haven't been through Rooted. How many in here, in here have been through Rooted? Raise your hand. All right, see those of us, okay, what about those who haven't been, I haven't been through Rooted yet. Those who haven't been through Rooted, raise your hand. All right, did you notice the difference between us and the others? Those who, they went, woo, we didn't do that. We didn't do that. So we're missing out. I'm signing up for Rooted. My wife and I are in a Rooted group starting next week. And if you haven't been through Rooted, I want you. Yeah. The people who are clapping for me are the people who have been through Rooted and know what's gonna do in my heart. They're like, finally, we have a pastor who's gonna be more godly. Finally, <laughs> it's gonna be good. I, if you haven't been through Rooted, I want you to get in Rooted group. And you're like, I don't, I don't what if I don't, I don't who, who am I gonna be with? I'm so glad Lydia didn't say, I don't know if I wanna be in a group with her. I don't know if I wanna be in a group with him. And this is what I can tell you about our team, our community life team, I've seen them. When everybody signs up, they put all the cards on a table and they spend hours, days, praying over exactly who's gonna be put together. They do not take this lightly at all. And so I believe that whoever is in your group is gonna be divinely appointed to be in your group and God's gonna use that group to really transform you and help you become who you're supposed to be. And so how do you sign up? Well, you can text rooted to this number. We're kind of, we have like a whole text ready. We're, we're, we're moving on up technologically. You can text something or you can, that was a joke, or you can sign up uh, and bring it to people in the patio or drop it in the offering box. Some of you did rooted, but you're not currently in a group. Most of the time, a rooted group will become a group, but some of the time that doesn't happen or sometimes a rooted group the, the, the leader gets transferred, job transferred to DC and your group kind of dissipates. If you're not currently in a group, I want you to get back in a group. And you know, I talked to a guy after the first service who, I gotta get back into a group. You gotta get back into a group. You know it. You know something's missing. 
You simply check, sign me up for the Connect group or you go to the patio or you text groups to that number. Do not buy into the lie that your faith is personal and therefore it's private. Your faith is personal, but because it's personal, it's never private. Jesus, I pray for this group today that you would help us live in community, become who you've designed us to be in community. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing together. And I want you to sing not only to the Lord, but sing in a way that people around you are encouraged by your declaration of how awesome Jesus is. Let's sing this new song together. One voice.
church this morning. Good day. Such a good day. If you're here and you want someone to pray with you about anything going on in your life, we have a team of people to my left, your right, right over there by those lights that would love to pray with you. If you're here and you want a team of elders or some of our elders to pray with you, the scripture says in James 5 that if you're sick, that you can ask the elders of the church to pray with you. And so we do that every week in our elder prayer room. So if you want prayer for healing, whether that's physical healing or emotional healing, we want to pray with you. We care. We care for you right where you are. And to get to our elder prayer room, you just go through those doors in the back and to the right, and you'll see the elder prayer room. Hey, the last couple of weeks here at this service at the 11, it's been um, kind of jammed, if you can tell. And so we've had to add chairs. We added a whole bunch of chairs from last week to this week. And so if you're, uh, some of you love it. You're like, I love it when it's jammed. And some of you are like, I don't like it when it's jammed. Well, our 9 a.m. is less crowded and our Saturday at 5 is less crowded. And would love for, to invite you to one of those if, um, if you can switch with your, with your schedule. On your way out, stop by the groups area, our community life area on the patio. We'd love to help you get connected. Let's extend our hands and receive God's blessing as we go. Jesus, these are your sons and your daughters, and you say in your word that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And Lord, I believe this morning that they have drawn near to you. And so I ask you on their behalf to draw near to them this week, that they would sense your presence with them as they work, as they live, as they play, as they relate to others. Lord, I pray that they would sense your presence, that you are their rear guard, that you're always with them, that you would meet all of their needs this week according to your riches and glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.